indirect exchange becomes more necessary as division of labor increases and wants become more refined. In the present stage of economic development, the occasions when direct exchange is both possible and actually effected have already become very, very exceptional. Nevertheless, even nowadays, they sometimes arise. Take, for instance, the payment of wages in kind, which is a case of direct exchange so long on the one hand as the employer uses the labor for the immediate satisfaction of his own needs and does not have to procure through exchange, the goods in which the wages are paid. And so long, on the other hand, as the employee consumes the goods he receives and does not sell them. Such payments of wages in kind is still widely prevalent in agriculture, although even in this sphere its importance is being continually diminished by the extension of capitalistic methods of management and the development of division of labor. Thus, along with the demand in a market for goods for direct consumption, there is a demand for goods that the purchaser does not wish to consume but to dispose of by further exchange. It is clear that not all goods are subject to this sort of demand. An individual obviously has no motive for an indirect exchange if he does not expect that it will bring him nearer to his ultimate objective, the acquisition of goods for his own use. The mere fact that there would be no exchanging unless it was indirect could not induce individuals to engage in indirect exchange if they secured no immediate personal advantage from it. Direct exchange being impossible and indirect exchange being purposeless from the individual point of view, no exchange would take place at all. Individuals have recourse to indirect exchange only when they profit by it. For example, only when the goods they acquire are more marketable than those which they surrender. Now, all goods are not equally marketable. While there is only a limited and occasional demand for certain goods, that for others is more general and constant. Consequently, those who bring goods of the first kind to market in order to exchange them for goods that they need themselves have, as a rule, a smaller prospect of success than those who offer goods of the second kind. If, however, they exchange their relatively unmarketable goods for such as are more marketable, they will get a step nearer to their goal and may hope to reach it more surely and economically than if they had restricted themselves to direct exchange. It was in this way that those goods that were originally the most marketable became common media of exchange. For example, goods into which all sellers of other goods first converted their wares and which it paid every would-be buyer of any other commodity to acquire first. And as soon as those commodities that were relatively most marketable had become common media of exchange, there was an increase in the difference between their marketability and that of all other commodities, and this in its turn further strengthened and broadened their position as media of exchange. Thus, the requirements of the market have gradually led to the selection of certain commodities as common media of exchange. The group of commodities from which these were drawn was originally large and differed from country to country, but it has more and more contracted. Whenever a direct exchange seemed out of the question, each of the parties to a transaction would naturally endeavor to exchange his superfluous commodities not merely for more marketable commodities in general, but for the most marketable commodities. 
and among these again, he would naturally prefer whichever particular commodity was the most marketable of all. The greater the marketability of the goods first acquired in indirect exchange, the greater would be the prospect of being able to reach the ultimate objective without further maneuvering. Thus, there would be an inevitable tendency for the less marketable of the series of goods used as media of exchange to be, one by one, rejected, until at last only a single commodity remained, which was universally employed as a medium of exchange. In a word, money. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. My name is Pierre Rochard, and I'm here with Michael Goldstein, a.k.a. Bitstein. How are you, Michael? Howdy. I'm doing well. Doing well. Doing well despite the, the bear market we're now in. <laughs> you know, I was looking at um, the 200-week moving average because I, I think that's always been a kind of uh, interesting metric because I believe we've gone under that twice in Bitcoin's history. Um, and that number is now over 22,000. So hyper-Bitcoinization is indeed happening. The, the fact that it would be a, it would be a, a quite, quite the moment in Bitcoin history if we went down to 22,000. Wow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, now, having said that, though, from what I've, uh, I saw this graph that was like the um, rate of return over time for Bitcoin using a five-year uh, moving window, basically. Um, and the rate of return has always been positive over five years, but it has been going down, um, which I thought was interesting. It's like uh, either that's just noise because like it could do anything um, or because it's becoming bigger and bigger. And now it's almost like a trillion dollar market cap or whatever uh, that it has reached some kind of critical mass where the, uh, you know, like any kind of big company, eventually the growth slows down no matter uh, what? Because adoption is hitting a ceiling. Um, but like then flip side to that is if you look at adoption, like we're nowhere near a ceiling. So I feel like this is just uh, noise. Yeah, I mean, we'll never beat 2010. Uh, whenever I whenever I look at the numbers uh, with with the price, I always kind of I uh, many times, depending on what kind of numbers I'm looking at, I'll often just remove up until maybe 2013 or so, because we're just, we're never going to have that again, because going from zero to one is infinite, infinite growth. Um, so it's kind of, it's not even good to be comparing yourself to infinity, um, uh, at least in a, in a short run. Obviously, Bitcoin will yeah. go to infinity in the long run. Because if, if you look at 2017, um, I think the, the bottom of the previous cycle was like, let's just call it $400 um uh, you know in uh 2015 um and so $400 to let's call it $20,000 i know that lots of debate on that number um but that is a 50x um and so if bitcoin had done a 50x from let's say $3,000 um that would be like 150 grand so I do think that there's been like a slowdown compared to the previous cycle, but I also 
think that, you know, uh, this gets into like the S2F debate and the halvings and whatnot. I think that because the um, the impact of the having has been less and less, uh, that the amplitude is flattening, but perhaps the wavelength is lengthening and that, you know, we'll, we'll have another bull market maybe even before the next halving. Um, and that this is just like, uh, in 2013, there was like a mini bubble in April and then a bigger one in December. Uh, so, you know, I, I, this gets into maybe super cycle theory. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I found my script and I just ran it, uh, that I just written just the other day. Cause I was thinking about what is it like to hold Bitcoin for five years yeah. and starting, I, I had it start at, um, June 1st, 2013, uh, because I didn't want, like, I, I don't want to you know, get thrown off by the fact that the, the, the returns you'd have uh, previous to that is just absurd uh, relative to anything that I, I think we can expect today. Although who knows, maybe everyone will wake up tomorrow and want to be a Bitcoiner and that'd be great. But the, the minimum that you would have uh, seen an increase for uh, since that time period over the course of five years was if you had bought in at the end of 2013, um, and you would have only seen a 238% increase. So, um, those, those poor, those pe poor people, they, uh, only tripled their money. Yeah. Poor people that, and you know, I'm sure there's lots of people who bought the top, right? That's like the, one of the most popular times to be buying is uh, close to the top. Yeah. Well, and the, the median was uh, about 4,000%. So. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, it just highlights the importance of dollar cost averaging as well over time so that you're not, uh, you know, only buying the top, uh, at least uh, you're uh, also buying the dip. Um, but in any case, we don't have to talk about the price the entire time today. Um, are there uh, some other topics? Yeah. I mean, there's way more interesting things. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm interested. So you just went through this whole uh, endeavor with lightning at Kraken. Um, and I'm just interested to learn what are some of the big lessons that you got from working with that? Um, are there, are you more bullish on lightning? Are you less bullish? Uh, are there, are there sort of realities you run into that you didn't think, you know, like limitations you didn't know existed or, you know, perhaps fewer limitations than you believed? Um, so uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. Honestly, on just strictly speaking on the lightning side, on the technology side, um, that really was not, uh, the limitation in any way. I mean, the, the, the software works great. And I knew that, you know, uh, before joining Kraken, because I was working on the node launcher and like running my own routing node, um, that, uh, the technology itself works great. Um, the, I think that the, the challenge uh, for exchanges is that Lightning is different uh, than all of the other um, kind of, let's say, crypto network integrations that they might have. Because basically, um, even like all of the altcoins, but even, uh, you know, the, the the ones that are not UTXO based that are like account based and all of this, um, they generally have an RPC interface uh, that is similar to Bitcoin's. And they also 
have behavior that is similar to Bitcoin's in the sense that um, you're not, uh, it's a, they're all global broadcast systems, right? They're not uh, layer two uh, actual peer-to-peer -peer systems. Um, and so uh, the, the, because Lightning is actually innovative and doing something different, it does add more uh, thought into, okay, how do we implement this? I mean, just one example is that like with a Bitcoin address, you don't need to know what amount uh, you're going to be sending. Um, and with a Lightning invoice, you could have a Lightning invoice without an amount, but uh, generally you input an amount and it's hard coded into the invoice, um, which is an improvement over just a typical address situation. And it um, you know, actually has great uh, security improvement to it as well. And on top of that, it's not reusable and uh, it can expire. And so these are like UX improvements that, that Lightning has that makes it truly fit for purpose as a payment system. And uh, you know, obviously still way better than Visa or MasterCard, but better than Bitcoin on chain. Um, so like, I, I really think that Bitcoin on chain for payments, uh, its days are numbered. I think that, I, I hope that people only ever use on chain for cold storage or for opening and closing channels like in the background uh, and that like anything payments related will always be on Lightning is uh, the hope there. Um, but yeah, all this to say that uh, it does have its its little nuances in terms of integrating. And if you're at a company where like all past integrations have been pretty cookie cutter of, okay, they, you know, they've got this RPC interface and here's the behavior that we're expecting in terms of how withdrawals and deposits are going to work and the end-to-end -end flow, um, then uh, that, that, you know, creates additional... Uh, integration work, you know, I have lots of if statements uh, added in there. <laughs> yeah, I but, think people yep. underestimate um, just how bad the UX is for Bitcoin as a payment system. And it's it's one thing to just say, oh, it takes 10 minutes. And that's that's the obvious one. Um, but there, there's so much that makes it awful. And I think um, the way that I, I had to learn that uh, wasn't necessarily uh, through trying to pay, but actually trying to build uh, my own my own ways of uh, watching for payments, uh, you know, early on before we had tools like BTC Pay Server and and stuff like that. Trying to do that stuff from scratch um, is not easy, and you realize just like how much stuff you have to watch for. You have to wait for a block. You have to you have to like trawl for specific transactions, and it, it's it's not as straightforward as as one might imagine because the RPC just isn't really made for <laughs> for calling these things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, even just like the 10 minutes, like that's not, uh, it's not always 10 minutes, right? It can be uh, seconds, it can be an hour. Um, and that's, um, um, that, that, that's a, a, a UX challenge. On top of that, there's the fees. So the on-chain fees can be volatile. Um, Lightning has kind of an interesting set of trade-offs on the fees. One is that the fees are based on the amount of value that you're sending. Two is that the fees can be very different depending on what your channel management situation is. So 
if you have a channel open directly with the person that you're paying, it's free, uh, which is amazing. Um, but if you're like very far away and you're like eight hops away and those eight hops are very expensive, you know, it could be an arbitrary percentage of the uh, payment. Now, I, it's recommended that you, you cap it to 1%. And the reason you have to cap it is because you actually, with Lightning, don't know what fee you're actually going to pay until after it has successfully been routed. Um, and so you have to like set a maximum up front of, okay, I'm willing to pay up to 1%. It'll be great if it's a lot less than that, but uh, here's kind of the max, um, which is you know so complicated from uh, a product perspective of how are we going to communicate this to users that it's like, well, let's just not charge a withdrawal fee so that uh, we don't have to like deal with uh, all this information flow um, and really, you know, both like handle the, the fee situation in the background of, okay, you know, we're going to try to minimize our, our withdrawal fees, but also that if you're routing payments, you can offset the cost of withdrawals with the routing revenue that you're generating from your node. And so uh, that's what like makes it, you know, uncontroversial to be like, okay, well, we just won't charge for this at all. Yeah. Another big thing that people have always kind of concerned trolled with Lightning, although perhaps there's something to it, uh, is the idea that over time Lightning is going to be um, rather centralized. You're going to have a lot of a very like hub and spoke network. Um, from your experience at Kraken, do you think that uh, such a thing uh, will or will not happen? And if if the answer is yes, uh, how much of a problem is that actually? Yeah, I, I put this like in the same category as mining pools, right? Where people are always like, oh, these mining pools, look at the, they've got, you know, the top five mining pools have 80% of the hash rate or something like that. And um, then it, it's like, oh, okay, that's too centralized and... Uh, in theory, you know, something bad can happen. But in practice, it's been, you know, uh, more than a decade and nothing uh, horribly nefarious has happened. I, I remember one incident with ghash.io like a long time ago. But um, the reason being is that even if it looks centralized from whatever quantitative measurement you're using, the cost of decentralizing is very low. And so if somebody's uh, very big routing node gets DDoSed and knocked off the network or whatever, um, it's permissionless in the sense that you can, you can close that channel that you have to their node and open up a new channel to some other node and you, you're not dependent on them or anything like that. It's um, very low barrier to entry. Uh, but I do think that in practice, as long as lightning nodes are not systematically attacked, uh, that you there will emerge um, lightning nodes that are much larger than others, and that it's essentially a power law distribution. Uh, and that's what we currently see on the graph, is that there are uh, some very large uh, nodes and um, many, many small nodes. Uh, but one of the principles I, I really wanted to emphasize with Kraken's node was that we would open a channel with essentially anyone. 
All right, with a, a 1 million Satoshi minimum for the channel, just you know, because of the uh, resource usage of uh, the actual node software. Um, but the idea there being that Lightning is, um, is designed to be robust to adversarial participants. And so uh, there shouldn't be so much concern about who you're peering with, who you're opening a channel with, Beyond just uh, are they, uh, you know, are, are they online? Are they, you know, being reliable? Uh, you don't, you don't need a trusted third party. That's like the whole point of how this protocol is designed. If if you wanted a trusted third party, like you would go for more of like a federated permissioned model, um, which is another way of scaling at layer two, um, or you know, as some people call it layer three, uh, but um, yeah, I think that Lightning is, by many measures, going to look "quote unquote" centralized. Um, but really, to to me, what what matters as a measure of decentralization is how much would it cost for me to opt in or opt out. Um, so to to run a Lightning node and to tear it down, and that to me is the the measure of decentralization. Yeah, I, I think that's actually, I, I agree with that. That's how I've thought about it for, for a long time, which is more in line with basically the Austrian theory of monopoly, which is we, you think in terms of legal monopoly, are you allowed um, to run a competitive business instead of the more kind of like Chicago style way of looking at it, is, which is, are there competing businesses? So people kind of have like the, the nirvana fallacy of a perfectly competitive market, but such a thing that, 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 that can't even exist. That's why it's a nirvana fallacy. It's just a thing you made up in your head and then you're um, comparing it all to that thing you made up in your head. Whereas the Austrians say, uh, what defines a monopoly is the fact that, you know, you, you uh, use aggressive force against anyone who tries to compete with you. And so uh, someone, for instance, like, you know, I think the classic example is if there's one barber in a little town, you know, the Chicago school would say, oh, it's a monopolist. Uh, but the Austrian would just say, well, that's just the one barber. And if they're doing a great job, then um, that's fine. And if someone wants to open another barber shop, that's the real question. And uh, with that in mind, I, I think that's a better way of kind of looking at centralization um, and, and decentralization. Um, did you have something on that? Yeah, I mean, just the, like this notion that, oh, uh, you know, the, the barbershop industry is too centralized if you aren't running your own barbershop. It's like, um, well, no, it's not, not necessarily the case. Um, but I do think that the a, a valid concern in my mind with regards to centralization um, is about uh, the difficulty of running a Lightning node um, on mobile, uh, but also on desktop. Although on desktop, I'm partial because I'm like, hey, the node launcher works great, so uh, you know, don't worry about that. Um, but um, you know, even even on desktop, the channel management—that's uh, something that is not fully automated yet. And uh, you know, folks are working on that, so I, I appreciate that. But um, in terms of having a high reliability on payments, it might be the case that um, using a centralized hosted Lightning node that um, is handling all of that in the background, like Kraken's is, 
um, that that's going to give you a higher success rate for paying any given uh, lightning invoice. And so, um, and same thing with like Chivo or Wallet of Satoshi or uh, Blue Wallet, uh, although Blue Wallet actually lets you also point to your own L&D hub, so you don't necessarily have to use theirs. But um, the the risk there is always kind of the, uh, well, the general risk of using a third-party custodian, uh, you know, are, are your, uh, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Um, the, the way that I kind of rationalize working on a custodial solution at Kraken, though, is that um, people should treat this as walking around money, as their checking account that they put very little Bitcoin on, and uh, that is just you know a very convenient way of making payments on the go, um, whereas their long-term savings that they would put on a hardware wallet, a signing device, uh, and um, you know perhaps even a multi-sig, uh, perhaps with Unchained, uh, and that way they're very secure uh, for their long-term savings, while they also have the convenience of short-term payments. The other downside is the privacy. So you know if you're using a third-party service, that was going to be mine. Yeah, that was also going to be my next question with regards to uh, if you have sort of this more centralized looking um, um, topology, how, what effects on privacy does that have? There's already these concerns that companies like Chainalysis, um, you know, they're looking to surveil the, the lightning network. And uh, does moving towards a hub and spoke model or something that looks like it, does that just hand all of the data over to chain analysis and, uh, you know, remove all hope of privacy on Bitcoin? Um, so, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, at the end of the day, in order for exchanges to buy the services of chain analysis, uh, there has to be some uh, value in it. And um, Currently, their product offering at Chainalysis with regards to Lightning uh, does not have value to it from my point of view. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just uh, kind of the, the bottom line there. And so if it doesn't have any value, then there's no reason uh, to, uh, you know, share any data with them or anything like that. Um, and the reason it doesn't have value is that there are no uh, heuristics about uh, payment flows uh, that they can get from, uh, you know, applying data science to the public graph. So they are reliant on proprietary data to somehow come up with some heuristics. And um, they, th that kind of uh, breaks their business model in the sense that um, if, if that worked, then that's how like the banking system would work, right? There would be a chain analysis for banks that gets data from all the banks and kind of, uh, you know, sifts through it to uh, uncover all the bad guys, right? Which is like, not at all what uh, goes on. Um, and um, yeah, I think the other part of it that even if chain analysis had all of the data from uh, centralized uh, hubs, you know, I think that it makes a lot of sense and this is what what I would recommend to people to do is to have like a uh, lightning wallet on their phone. And then if they need more sats on it, rather than dipping into their cold storage, they can go buy 
$20 worth of Bitcoin at Kraken and send it to their Lightning wallet. And, uh, you know, then they have, you know, pretty good privacy, lots of hand waving because, you know, they probably should open another channel. So they're not routing back through Kraken and all this. But um, yeah, it's uh, the the other part to it, though, is that I do think that there are like protocol improvements that are going to improve privacy. Um, the, the challenge is always with privacy is uh, getting people to care. Um, I don't think that until like something bad happens, uh, people don't ascribe a lot of value to privacy. Uh, so uh, maybe in, in some country, there will be a crackdown on Bitcoin and they will, you know, use bad privacy practices to dox a bunch of people and, uh, you know, Holocaust them or something. But uh, until that happens, I think that it, privacy is going to kind of be the uh, activist uh, position. Right, right. I, I do think that, uh, you know, if if over time, uh, like, for instance, there's the um, the de minimis clause in, in this bill that was introduced by Senators uh, Lummis and Gillibrand that says, you know, $200 or less, um, you don't have to report capital gains. If that was the case, then perhaps perhaps a lot more people would be using Bitcoin for small purchases when that option is available, which does open up a lot of entrepreneurial uh, avenues for Bitcoiners who want to, you know, stack some sets. Um, and when you stack sets via, you know, earning it through providing a good or service in the marketplace, uh, there's no KYC on on those coins, unlike you know purchasing from a regulated. Uh, money transmitters. So um, with that, you know, we, we could see some some nice little uh, avenues crop up that that help. And, you know, I, I, I don't I'm not a privacy expert and I'm sure someone will yell at me. But if even if someone has like, you know, less good privacy, but then they pay you because you're just some random address, if they don't have knowledge of, you know, what what that person was buying specifically, just that the coins used to belong to person X, but now it doesn't. Um, then those coins have now, you know, entered a, a less uh, surveilled state. Um, and that, that could open up a lot of um, possibilities for people to um, retain their financial privacy um, and, you know, have a growing economy to boot. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, the uh, earning sats way is definitely the privacy optimizing way. Um, even better than uh, like kind of the the quote unquote decentralized uh, exchanges, um, where like you give someone else your bank information, <laughs> um, which to me is like not not great privacy, uh, it, it, even if it's peer to peer. Um, but uh, actually, um, buying and selling real goods and services is the best. Now, I was pretty dismayed. I saw that um, BitPay is uh, KYCing. Uh, people who are buying things from BitPay merchants uh, or merchants who use the BitPay integration, which in my mind is wild. Like I can sort of understand KYCing the merchant, uh, but their customer, I mean, that seems like overreach. Yeah. And, and knowing your customer's customer and uh, yeah. it, it's, it's absurd. And, and that doesn't seem, I, I would be astounded if that was because the, the government is forcing them to do it rather than um, them perhaps being spineless or something. 
Perhaps. And, uh, you know, the uh, obviously BTC pay server and the like uh, solve that that particular issue. Um, yeah, they are obsolete. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I th- uh, now what would be really cool. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, if the if the whole economy was like every business is running their own BTC pay server, uh, every consumer has like a non-custodial lightning wallet with automated channel management in the background and everyone uh, held their own keys like that in my mind is the best future uh that would be fantastic um and we're kind of in this weird uh half fiat half bitcoin world yeah and of course i mean the the biggest problem is just we are unfortunately reliant on fiat um, somewhere down the chain, someone has to still pay with fiat. Um, and so a lot of this often isn't even like a Bitcoin problem per se. It's a fiat problem. Um, and we, you know, have to render under Caesar <laughs> what is Caesar's. And um, it's unfortunate, but like, you know, Bitcoin itself, it, it actually has a pretty cool privacy model. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot that it can do, um, but there are obviously these, these bottlenecks. Yeah, and I was I was hopeful that the inflation would help accelerate uh, Bitcoin adoption, but I think that the they they are um, responding to the inflation so quickly with raising rates, interest rates, and like causing the stock market to crash and Bitcoin to go down uh, that um, they are prolonging the fiat experiment. I mean, this is always. This is uh, the the best way of saving fiat from in hyperinflationary, you know, crack up boom, is to uh, impose some deflationary austerity on uh, the economic system, and uh, just perpetuating the the pain. Which I, I I was hoping that that Joe would be like, no, we need to you know keep pouring fuel on the fire, um, but it seems like. Uh, they actually are uh, tightening the money printer, right? Which uh, is bad for the Bitcoin circular economy because, like, ultimately, like merchants are going to adopt Bitcoin because they don't want to hold fiat because it's inflating too quickly, uh, and you got to get to really high rates of inflation to have that that tears law kick in, um, or we orange pill merchants one at a time, which, you know, we've been doing for the past decade, but uh, it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Well, I think, I think Bitcoin, you know, it's always going to take some amount of time. Um, And, you know, you, you were talking a lot about how Bitcoin is such an amazing hedge against inflation that it hedged before the inflation. Oh yeah. Uh, And so in some ways it's like, you know, if, if you're waiting until the inflation, like you're too late in a sense for Bitcoin to help you. Bitcoin already did its job. Absolutely. Um, I guess I was thinking about kind of the momentum, right? Of, um, yeah, Bitcoin went from three grand to let's call it 29 grand today. And so it outperformed every other asset by far in this inflation. Um, but, uh, in order to keep that momentum, 
the monetary tightening would have had to, uh, to, to, to be delayed. I do think though that like, it's inevitable that they crash the stock market or whatever, they cause the debt bubble to start bursting. And then it causes a real financial crisis of, hey, the system is insolvent, we need bailouts, or uh, you know, the world ends, Armageddon, like in 2008, you know, when they start freaking out. And um, that's when they have to print money again. So it's not like they're you know, never gonna have to print money again. It's it, the system with fractional reserve banking uh, requires uh, constant inflation. Um, but what's interesting is that with this coming deflationary crash, the, it's going to be the Republicans who are in charge of Congress. And I wonder if they will be um, accelerationist and, and say, all right, let's bail it out and print lots of money because we are pro-Bitcoin. Or if they're going to be decelerationist of, well, we have to protect the dollar. We have to you know, have austerity and we can't bail everyone out and uh, you know, kind of be a boomer conservative. But uh, we'll see. I'm going to guess the, the, the latter, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Perhaps. this all being said, yeah. This, this all being said, like even even if uh, even if they the the money masters uh, truly mastered their money, which they can't do, uh, inflation is is uh, once you start inflating, you can't stop until you know the the reckoning. Whenever whenever that inevitable happens, um, even with that, let's imagine that they they master it. We we all go back to our two percent inflation uh, targets every every year. That's still a huge win for Bitcoin in the long run because of, you know, 2% is, you know, I, I've said it before, that is hyperinflation when you really think about it. It's, it's absurd how much money is, is just, how much of the economy is just consumed by inflation when you have even just 2%. So there's that to consider. And then the other side of it is that the fact that we have gone through this whole thing, inflation is on the forefront of everyone's minds. And I don't think that that's going to, you know, go away anytime soon. I think even, even after inflation kind of slows down, you know, of, of prices, people are going to have their PTSD from, you know, seeing gas prices go up, from seeing, you know, formula off the shelves, um, all, all these things, all these shortages and, and all the hurt that they've gone through. They're still going to feel it. And so we have this, this long period of, um, I think, a situation where people are going to be very open to the Bitcoin message in a way that uh, we were considered crazy just two years ago. You know, it was not very long ago that uh, Bitcoiners were seen as crazy because we cared about inflation at all. Um, and, and that's completely changed. So uh, that gives me hope that there is a, a larger pool of people who um, would be interested in hearing the message and would then be interested in getting into Bitcoin, uh, no matter the fiat weather. You know, if if fiat's doing you know its regular thing, they're still going to know that they want to DCA. And if fiat is going crazy, they're still going to want to DCA. If not, you know, be more aggressive to you know fight fight that off quicker. Yeah, I agree. And if if we did the thought experiment of let's say the the uh, money overlords adopted Bitcoin's monetary policy, right? And we're doing money supply targeting. 
100% reserve banking and, um, you know, really, really taking the competition seriously. Uh, then I still think Bitcoin would win much more slowly, but Bitcoin would win because of one, the um, seizure resistance and two, the censorship resistance. And so um, those two things uh, are also drivers of Bitcoin, even if, you know, I think that they contribute a lot less than the, uh, what I would call the savings censorship of uh, fiat. Um, but mm -hmm. I think they, they would still be, be drivers. In addition to kind of the um, issue of global bartering, right, of uh, all of these fiat currencies competing against each other uh, internationally and causing so much friction in global commerce versus a neutral money that is not controlled by any given state. Um, and so like, even if all of the central banks were perfect and they didn't print any money, you would still have this problem of Forex and of uh, trying to figure out what's, what's our global money. Yeah, I mean, when you when you if they were able to do such a thing, um, obviously those people in charge would want to scam everyone into using their product rather than the open source product. But the point is, there's like that that open source product that's there, and that also removes uh, regime uncertainty. So yes, you might be totally on point now, but what happens in four years? And there's a new appointee, a new chairman. Do they have the same beliefs? Um, there's always going to be that human desire to uh, mess everything up again. And so I think everyone else would still like they'd want the open source product, uh, hopefully, um, yeah, and, if, if they're and intelligent. Like, as a it, it also removes yeah. their need to care about uh, worrying about money, like how much how much. How much, uh, you know, uh, economic value is destroyed just by people having not just like the inflation itself, but like having to sit and think about inflation and think about these things and, and watch, you know, uh, you know, wait for uh, uh, Powell to come on and see what color of tie he's wearing or whatever. Like how much just economic value is drained off of having to care um, at, at all. And so, you know, a lot of countries, they already just use the dollar because the dollar is better than whatever they would have. Um, they could take that same attitude one step further by just saying, we don't even want to care about uh, American politics at all, or, you know, European politics or Chinese politics. And then if you're like looking to build on top of it, you don't want to have to get permission, you know, like sign up for an account follow their terms of service, sign their NDA agreement, like all of this nonsense is completely irrelevant if you're building on something that's open source. Yes. So this is like the, the other side of sort of the El Salvador vision, as I can see it. I mean, I, I, I only, you know, I've only listened to some podcasts, but it seems like, you know, if, if, if they're kind of a barometer for what other countries are thinking, they really do want to leap forward technologically. And the dollar, face it, just does not have a good API. You know, we can, we can say how uh, the Bitcoin RPC, you know, oh, it's actually, you know, not the best for doing this and that payments, but try doing that with the Fedwire RPC. There isn't even an RPC. It's like it, you have to actually like, get on the phone probably. I don't know. Um, but no, the, 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 whole, the whole dollar system is like a giant 
disgusting kludge where at least like Bitcoin, the worst of our, our problems is like, I don't know, maybe P2SH wasn't like the better of the options that we could have used. Um, and overall, the engineering is just so good and it actually resembles what you would want if you were creating an ideal digital money. Yeah, um, so this is an opportunity to shill uh, Bitcoin for Advisors, my other podcast with Morgan Richard. Um, we were talking about Bitcoin addresses and how there's a checksum in it. And so if you get one letter wrong, then it's not a valid address anymore. Whereas with a wire transfer, if you get one like number wrong in the account number, the money just goes to someone else. It's like absolute insanity. Yeah, uh, which I, I would actually point out that Bitcoin is even better than that because with BEC32 addresses, if you, to a certain degree, if you make mistakes writing out the address, it can actually tell you what you did wrong. So it's actually sort of uh, self-correcting in that sense. It has, it has a correcting UX, um, whereas, yeah, you send the wire to the wrong place and it's gone forever and uh, some, some other guy will you know, get to enjoy the, the, the fruits of your mistakes. Yeah. Um, obviously that can happen in Bitcoin, but we, we have, like we said, like these, these safeguards against it. Um, so for those who, you know, have, have the right level of paranoia, they don't have to worry about that. Absolutely. Um, now, I think though, like, even though uh, I, I've been saying that I'm, I'm concerned about the uh, fiat tightening, it might actually not even be enough to address the inflation that's going on. Um, and like, I, I've been seeing tweets about food shortages coming uh, and oil and all sorts of raw materials um, and like gas prices are still hitting records. And so um, it might be because one, there are like structural problems, obviously, uh, with uh, the situation in Ukraine, um, and then arsonists burning down meat processing plants uh, that uh, would actually constrain supply and make it even harder to rein in inflation. Uh, but uh, I don't know, what do you make of that? Well, here's a genuine question, not, not just like a rhetorical one. Um, but how much of the sort of responses by the money masters, how much of the response is due to this inability to understand that money is non-neutral? So their, their initial actions are based on the flawed idea that money is, is neutral. Um, you get like the, the, you know, helicopter Ben, he's just going to drop dollars everywhere, which of course doesn't even make sense because if you did that, then there would be no effect of inflation. Like the only, the only reason inflation as a policy would work is because it's, it's not neutral and that there is a cancel on effect because that way, you know, people think of that in the, the, uh, you know, obvious negatives, but from their perspective, well, we have this problem in the housing market. So if we direct funds there, we can help alleviate that's, you know, part of what's going on. But because of that, what I'm basically asking is, you know, it takes time for the economy to adjust to any, um, you know, supply inflation uh, at all. You know, it, it doesn't just percolate through the economy overnight. It takes it takes a lot of time working its way through various industries. So, you know, we're probably still dealing with the fallout of, you know, just the initial actions of printing a third of all money. 
um, back in, in 2020. And now when you're like tightening, that's just adding, add, adding more complexity to the economy already trying to uh, take in this new knowledge of, well, we have more units of money. Um, so do you think that that's like that, that, uh, that, that lack of understanding of the non-neutrality of money kind of uh, makes the Fed actions even more um, chaotic? Well, I'm torn because one, like, yeah, you're right. They, they do have this like ideology um, of uh, money being neutral. But two, I don't know that they can operationally have a different ideology um, because they it's basically kind of a um, it's not a scalable like if if they accepted the view that money is non-neutral and that they have to build tools that enable them to do what they want to do and take into account the non-neutrality of money like those tools can't exist because they are not scalable right they like they don't have they have the knowledge problem of figuring out okay how exactly is money not neutral um and so they have to like just put you know uh a um I was going to say a blindfold on, but I was going to say an ether rag over their face uh, and, uh, you know, kind of just not care too much about it because there's no practical solution to uh, to it. Um, and there, yeah, the, the, the chaos unleashed by injecting money with like, um, you know, it was the, the PPE loans uh, where... Uh, you know, the Paycheck, Paycheck Protection Act or whatever, whatever the politicians came up with um, that apparently like a bunch of scammers got like billions of dollars and then raising interest rates does not just like take money away from scammers, right? It, then you're just taking money out of the whole system. And so proportionally, the scammers are getting even wealthier. Uh, and so it's like truly the worst of both worlds where um on uh, kind of the, on the stimulus, it's the bad that gets stimulated. And then on the, uh, you know, austerity, it's the good that gets austered. And, and it's just uh, making the system worse and worse uh, and increasingly misallocating resources to where now, you know, I'm sure there's lots of scammers riding around in Lambos while babies can't get baby formula. <laughs> it's like, uh, that's the reallocation of resources that uh, the Fed, you know, and, and the political system decided on. But they right. just, uh, they can't consciously decide on it because it's just too complex. But um, yeah, in any case, uh, there's, <sighs> yeah, the only hope is, uh, is Bitcoin still. Yeah. Well, like I said, I think it's, it, you know, to the point, it's just, it's just the, uh, it's the better engineering solution, just uh, period. In every so, regard. yeah. In every regard, so uh, you know, however long it takes, it takes. But that's why we we DCA. That's why we hodl, um, and uh, you know, I think that's why. I, I don't know if you guys covered this in Bitcoin advice for advisors, but you know, the importance of just positioning yourself in a way where you never feel like you have to sell your your sads. Um, because I think you, you never know how long it's, yeah, you yeah. never know how long it's going to take. You actually have to lower your time preference. Uh, and it's it's not just um, 
because Bitcoin is long term, but it's also because hyper Bitcoinization is uh, long term as well. Um, but yeah, I'm ultimately, you know, I think that so much infrastructure has been built over the past 10 years and that Bitcoin itself is, has needed improvement, right? Like that um, it's only like as long as Rodolfo is coming out with new cold card versions, uh, we're still very early. Uh, eventually, he'll come out with the final version, <laughs> and we'll know that we're ready for mass adoption. I was I was thinking um, recently. You know, one thing that I've I've always disliked about shit coins, uh, among many things I don't like about them, but there's this this drive for you know innovation. You know, they they say oh Bitcoin isn't innovative, um, and very often it's because like they came up with some new thing and they're doing like weekend hack projects around like little proofs of concept um, where, you know, in a certain context where you don't have to assume a lot of the uh, security issues that Bitcoin does have to assume, you can get away with doing X, Y, and Z cool things. Why doesn't Bitcoin do these cool things? And it's well, because it moves slower and it takes uh, security seriously. But with that, you know, I kind of have this, this view. I like to think it's the low time preference view. Uh, but what I think is important and why I like Bitcoin versus the, those other things is Bitcoin seeks to just, you know, introduce these, these primitives in a, in a slow fashion. You know, SegWit has only been around now for, what, four years? Um, Taproot took many years to be implemented. SegWit itself took many years to be implemented. Um, it, it introduces these, these primitives and then, you know, it just takes time to actually build these things. And I think people don't uh, appreciate the amount of time that it takes to, to actually see these primitives to fruition. So I think the best example is multi-sig. And the reason I say that is because multi-sig is something that has actually existed since day one of Bitcoin. It was in the, you know, version 0 0.1. Um, now that had like the sort of broken multi-sig in the sense that uh, there's, there's actually a, a funny bug where you have to add in an op zero um, to the script because of an off by one error. Um, that, that one was Satoshi, not Jeff Garzik. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, like there's, uh, it, it's been there since day one. Now we, we improved multi-sig uh, with P2SH and um, I think, you know, Taproot and Schnorr, um, Schnorr specifically, like there, there's offers a lot more possibility with multi-sig. But the point is, it's like today, now, you know, uh, 12, 12, 13 years into Bitcoin, we're only now really seeing this, this growth in um multi-sig technology in the sense of what are wallets that can actually do uh, create multi-sig wallets and manage multi-sig wallets and do all the coordinating necessary? How are people thinking about um, backups and seeds? And it's like, it's taken 13 years to actually think through these things. And we're still, we still have a long ways to go to get those things right. And so um, I think we do get almost blinded in the sense because the price is going up so much and how exciting that is, we don't look at the other side of it, which is this stuff does take time and we should allow it to take the time because we're just trying to do it right. And because 
we understand all of the, the you know, future economic benefits and all of that, we can withstand being able to just take it easy and wait and uh, just make sure we actually get the stuff right. Yeah, it's it's a, a long process of refinement. And like, it's it's interesting that Bitcoin is seen by by the crypto people as boomer technology. It's a dumb rock and it's uh, obsolete. Um, but if you ask them like, oh, when did, like, what do you think is the current status of music too? Where do you think that's at? They're like, music what? Like, what are you talking about? Um, and so there's like this, this massive disconnect between the narrative and the underlying reality, which in my mind, like, okay, that's an opportunity because that means that Bitcoin is a lot more affordable than it otherwise would be. Um, it might also explain um, this this price deceleration that we were talking about at the beginning of today's call. Um, if there is so much bad information in the market uh, that that is essentially diluting Bitcoin's price, right? Because now uh, money is going after all of these uh, um, altcoins that are uh, proclaimed to be innovative, but are actually less innovative than Bitcoin is, um, that that will mean revert inevitably because uh, the truth wins, reality always comes back. Um, and that that price deceleration uh, might actually be a temporary blip in the sense that when all of that liquidity comes back to Bitcoin, because uh, obviously these other uh, cryptos are not going to uh, deliver on any of their promises, uh, or even if they do, the the delivery wasn't worth anything, right? It's just like uh, the the promise was worth more than the actual uh, implementation. Um, there's no value there. Uh, that we'll we'll see a, a an acceleration of Bitcoin's exchange rate relative to not just crypto, but even versus uh, fiats, um, and that might you know define the next cycle or the cycle after that. But um, it it has to be the case that the information asymmetry is going to close at some point um, and that that will be reflected in the purchasing power of Bitcoin. Yeah, and every time that someone sells, there, you know, there is a buyer on the other side and very often that buyer is putting money into cold storage. And when you have money into cold storage, um, you know, that, that's how that weekly, that 200 uh, week, moving average goes up. In a sense, uh, I wonder if one way you could think of it is like, that's almost like the hodler price and the, uh, the whatever the price is, you know, on the ticker right now, that's the trader price. Um, because, you know, the, the hodlers, we don't really, we really don't affect the price day to day because we're just sell setting that, you know, baseline reserve demand. Um, and the traders get to have their fun uh, messing with all of our emotions. Um, and uh, but but that that 200 week moving average is this this uh, nice slow and steady except every four years it has like a nice uh, bump upward. Um, that's almost like a, a nice hopper price to look at, and you know it's just incredible. Once again, it's like twenty two thousand dollars. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, we're very close to it right now. So uh, you know we're we're close to fair value uh, for for stack and sats. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, let's see. Is there, um, I mean, I could, I could rant about stable coins. I, that, that I feel like is, is also another one of those things where um, people are hyping them up, but I, f I find them to be a distraction. Yeah, it, it's also like, uh, I noticed that politicians like distracting themselves with it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, that's also why I'm, I, you know, earlier you were saying like, oh, well, we have accelerationists or decelerationists and like stable coins is one of those things where it's like, that's why I think that it's, it's more likely to be decelerationist because they look to stable coins as this um, thing that can help like actually help the dollar and they, they still have, they're, they're still, they're still subservient to the dollar um, rather than the American people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and then it's like, we have finite time. So do you want to be educating people about the benefits of stable coins over um, Fedwire? Or do you want to educate them about the benefits of Bitcoin over the US dollar? And like the there are benefits to stable coins over you know the legacy fiat payment systems but um is that really like the um, marketing spend that you want to put towards that instead of putting it towards bitcoin yeah especially when a lot of the benefits at least in the first world um i i know that it, it might be different um in developing nations but here most of the reason that you want a stablecoin is just because you're a degen trader. It's not because you're, you know, taking taking that to the broker, buying some uh, sats and putting them into cold storage. It's usually because you're trying to do all kinds of price arbitrage, which I'm not. I don't. I don't recommend people do that. That's not. That's not part of my game. It's not part of. It doesn't. It doesn't do anything for me. Um, so, so for me, like even yes, it's like better than fiat for that. But why are you wanting fiat for that anyway? Yeah, um, and even if even if you are a trader who's doing that, why would you go around promoting stable coins uh, instead of being like you know uh, promoting Bitcoin and uh, trading it you know on on your own time <laughs> and instead of uh, yeah encouraging other people to trade on it a related thing is um there's an argument that i've seen around cbdc's and saying you know there's this basically this cosmic battle that we see it's like bitcoin versus cbdc that is that is the sort of battle of the future and if bitcoin has a chance of losing and we end up with a cbdc it would be nice if we could have a good CBDC that at least retains some of the properties we would want to have some semblance of, of freedom and autonomy in, in such a world. Therefore, we should devote resources to uh, working on CBDCs and um, trying to influence CBDC development so that we can kind of hedge against Bitcoin failure and hope that in the CBDC world, you know, we can, we can, uh, <laughs> we, we can still at least be somewhat human. Um, but in practice, I just, I, I don't feel it. I don't feel it at all. No, um, and it, they'll, they'll always lose the argument. I mean, it's fine for them to say, oh, let's have a voice at the table. It's like, yeah, okay, but you're going to get shouted down because you can be shouted down uh, because 
they're the ones who are like the the government is never going to and they've said that as much themselves of hey like this has to be fully regulated aka we spy on everything um there's no government that would like voluntarily uh put on the handcuffs and uh you know not not limit themselves and not even just spy i mean you see the works of that uh, Amarova woman who almost found herself. Uh, what, what 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 position was was she going to be? Uh, oh, it was a comptroller of yeah. the OCC. And um, you know, in in her paper, she just explicitly says that you know, while it wouldn't be popular, it is absolutely necessary that we need to have a mechanism to withdraw funds in case of emergency. Wink, wink. Um, uh, from people so that we can do the monetary policy we need to do. Um, you're entering territory where that is the ideology. You cannot not have that back door. Um, so not even just surveillance, but literally like uh, we, will, we will watch you as we steal your money. Um, it's not merely just watching you. It's also just taking away. Um, so yeah, you're, you're not going to have much influence with these people. It's, it's very much, you know, what I've talked about with framing is when you talk about Bitcoin, um, you're framing the discussion that Bitcoin is the correct thing and any, any competitor needs to try to emulate Bitcoin and build upon these principles that make Bitcoin good if they want to compete. But when you enter this CBDC realm, you're always on defense um, and it, it makes it much harder to um, make, any, make any headway. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that lady was also arguing, if I recall correctly, that uh, the banking system should not lend money to, um, you know, coal fired power plants or uh, to any kind of carbon emitting uh, anything. And so it's like just wanting full politicization of everything uh, in the financial system and not really being shy about it either. I mean, it's insane that the Democrats thought that she could get like approved. I guess, uh, you know, she had a shot at some point, but I, I don't know why she withdrew. <laughs> at some point, they, she, somebody like called her a Marxist or something. And then uh, people were like, oh, that's racist. You can't call her a Marxist just because she has a Russian accent. And I was thinking to myself like, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> uh but not because she has a russian accent but because she's a marxist like uh yeah yeah she she writes it <laughs> uh no there's like i didn't i i don't remember the details I, I thought there was like you know legitimate reasons to uh believe her to be like an actual for real marxist yeah and and not merely not merely her like nationality um yeah what 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 a what a world where they thought that that they could get away with that i mean i think that at this point they kind of have overreached and like there was that that disinformation board with that nina lady um that mm, yeah to like dismantle and fire her because so much emerged about her being insane um that yeah they don't this is narrative yeah. much yeah, well, this is why, you know, the, I, I like my disinformation board, you know, it checks, checks the network every 10 minutes and make sure there's no disinformation and it doesn't require crazy people um, to be making any decisions. Um, and yet at the same time, those crazy people are fully welcome to participate 
um, with the system. Um, that's that's the kind of disinformation board I like. A hundred percent. Did you look at the uh, the bill that Senator Lummis and uh, Gillibrand uh, put forward? So I only uh, had time to skim through one of, I think it was uh, Bitcoin Magazine um, overview of it. Um, like I, I had mentioned the, the de minimis clause, um, yeah. which I, I was rather sad that it was only $200 because that seems uh, rather low. Although I don't know, is, do de minimis laws exist for other things regarding capital gains? Yeah. And I, I think for like normal currencies, like the euro or whatever, it's like $650. And so it feels like a double standard that, uh, you know, Bitcoin would be $200 while other things are 600. But on top of that, it's not inflation indexed. Uh, for some reason, they never uh, index all these numbers to inflation. And so like even the suspicious activity report at $10,000, that was set in place in like the 1970s uh, when $10,000 was a lot of money. Now, you know, you can maybe get a hamburger for $10,000, uh, but uh, you'd have to report it. I don't know where you're finding hamburgers so cheap. $10,000, I'm just looking it up. If it just say 1976, yeah. uh, that'd be about, you know, 50,000 today. And that's using government numbers. So right. uh, that just goes to show how, how, how bad it is. And that's, that's actually like a really uh, pernicious thing about the government. They can get more overreach just by messing up their, their money more. Um, because that effectively means that they gain more power every year because they printed more money and that that value is is going down. Um, the worst is on um, the progressive tax system where uh, inflation pushes you into a higher percentage tax bracket. And so by having inflation, they can tax more. Yep, yep. So... Uh, was there anything that stuck out to you in the bill that uh, excites you? Anything that disappoints you besides <laughs> de minimis uh, clauses? Yeah, um, I think a, a lot of it was focused on things that I ultimately don't think are super relevant. Um, so um, I, I found the only, you know, good parts are the de minimis and then the okay, Bitcoin is officially a commodity, which we already knew that, but it can't hurt to make it official. Um, I think that what's missing is really a, um, a pro-Bitcoin agenda of we need to be acquiring Bitcoin, uh, we need to be uh, attracting Bitcoin miners to the United States, um, and we also need to be securing kind of the um, government granted property rights around Bitcoin, uh, which is something that Wyoming did, um, which could be done nationally uh, so that, uh, you know, lots of questions there are cleared up. Um, but also, like, this is not very libertarian of me, but I'm not opposed to them requiring banks to provide services or to not discriminate against Bitcoin related businesses or individuals. Um, and the reason I'm not opposed to that is because the reason those banks are doing that in the first place is because of the government. 
Uh, and they're like right, worried about right. the regulators, like, you know, attacking them for serving high risk, quote unquote, um, accounts. Um, but also like repealing the Bank Secrecy Act, you know, like going in heavy on uh, the real deal. That's that's yeah, all- get, getting to the root, the roots of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and if they can't get rid of it, then create like a, uh, you know, they call these like a regulatory sandbox or uh, some kind of um, exempt status of, hey, you don't have to follow the Bank Secrecy Act. For example, if you only handle Bitcoin, um, right? So it's really render unto Caesar, right? So if you touch the dollar, now you're covered by the Bank Secrecy Act. But if you are running a custodial lightning wallet, then Bank Secrecy Act does not apply uh, because that's protected by the Constitution of, you know, you, you arbitrary uh, seizure and warrantless search. Um, and I think that that would have been uh, really progressive uh, legislation and constructive on Bitcoin. Um, but I found that a lot of the stuff that they went after was really, it seemed to me, pandering to the crypto lobby um, who are more interested in promoting hyper shitcoinization than actually serving America and uh, helping consumers. Right. You know, this is something that uh, I, th- I think both of us have made this point before where, you know, I. Uh, you know, look, these things are all unregistered securities. And now you get the, the shitcoiners to say, oh, these, these maxis, they uh, want to sick the government after this. Like, I actually want the SEC abolished. Um, and I don't think that there's anything, you know, legally wrong about unregistered securities. In fact, I think there's something legal, legally wrong with requiring a security to be registered. Um, but at the same time, like that doesn't mean that I have any interest in promoting unregistered securities in the same way that me wanting drug laws repealed does not uh, by any means mean that I want to promote heroin usage. Yeah, absolutely. And to, to the reason, um, aside from the libertarian arguments for repealing the SEC, um, is that if there is no SEC, then you can launch your uh, uh, your 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 security uh, using a SQL database, right? And like, you know, there's no like motivation to have to have some smoke and mirrors uh, blockchain technology to try to obfuscate what you're doing. Right. In fact, uh, from from a libertarian perspective, this is this is highly speculative. But like, would it be the case that there 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 would be a case for fraud if someone's selling a security they claim is decentralized? Um, but is actually like running on Infura nodes. Yeah, so uh, we got into this debate when um, our our old friend Daniel posted uh, the app coins are snake oil article. He, yes. the original title was app coins are fraud. Um, and then uh, if I recall correctly, uh, a lot of S coiners got really uh, upset about that. Um, and I did some research on fraud. And um, so one of the requirements for fraud is that the fraudster is intentionally being dishonest. 
Um, and their argument was that it's not- And this is assuming a bit much about, yeah. about their knowledge of decentralization. Hey, I've got a hard stop I just realized uh, right now, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe pick up this conversation uh, next time. Cheers, Mike. Wonderful. All right, have a good one.